Good morning. Thanks for coming. Uh, this is FSV 301 Security Anti-Patterns. Um, this is the lead-off session of our financial services track here at Industry Day at reInvent, so thanks for coming. Um, my name is Kurt Gray. I'm a solutions architect with the Global Financial Services Group here in AWS. We specialize in supporting financial services customers and partners. Um, joining me for this talk for the latter part is Jonathan Balch. He's the Director of Architecture at Fidelity Investments. Earlier this year, Jonathan showed me a really cool deployment process they implemented with some proactive security checks. And so I asked John, I'm like, that's great. Can you show that to a thousand other people at reInvent? So uh, John has joined me on stage today, so thanks, John. Um, so my inspiration for doing this talk was I've been both a TAM and an SA here at AWS for a few years. Um, and in those sorts of customer-facing roles, uh, you see a lot of different cloud adoption patterns. You see a lot of security and governance patterns um, across different customers. Some of those patterns prove to be very manageable and uh, you know, easy to manage at higher levels of scale and at the enterprise scale. Some of those patterns prove to be you know, situations where the customer's like, well, that didn't turn out the way we thought it would, and we're, now we're changing our mind. So with all this tribal knowledge we have amongst our SAs and amongst our TAMs and ProServe, I figured it'd be interesting to share some of that tribal knowledge back to uh, our customer community with this uh, presentation. So what is an anti-pattern? Well, as it says here, an anti-pattern is a common response to a recurring problem that usually risks being highly counterproductive. I thought this photo kind of illustrates the point perfectly. Um, you can imagine at the dawn of the motor age, when automobiles were new, there were some people that were not quite ready for the new paradigm, so they were still doing the old practice and not taking full advantage of the new platform. Um, and there might have been a perfectly logical reason for doing that, but uh, clearly, you know, that, I think that's a good example of an anti-pattern. Um, so when we talk about a security anti-pattern, it's not really something that puts you in immediate danger if you do it. It's just, it's a governance pattern which seems logical at first, but when you apply it at an enterprise scale, uh, you can kind of run into some unforeseen consequences, uh, such as, lack of agility, you can look at lack of agility from the perspective of your security team, and that could mean the ability to do fast uh, threat assessments across your entire infrastructure. You know, if a new vulnerability or something is announced, your CISO probably wants to know right away, are we exposed to this or not? So you want to deliver that answer quickly. Um, and also, if there is an exposure, how fast can you patch it? How fast can you patch it across a broad fleet of infrastructure? And of course, agility from the business uh, perspective is you know, the ability to innovate quickly, roll out new features quickly. Um, if your security controls are too onerous and you know, uh, too difficult to implement, you might even have rogue dev teams kind of going around your security controls, so you don't want that either. The whole goal is to have a harmonious situation where your whole enterprise is able to move quickly and secure yourselves quickly. So with that in mind, um, I want to talk about four categories of anti-patterns. There's AWS account management. There's how you approach network design, network architecture. Uh, 
infosec auditing activities and how you approach software delivery. So the first uh, has to do with AWS account management and account structure. And this first example, um, it's, this is purely administrative. This is not even technical, but it's very important at the enterprise level. Typically, enterprises have a lot of AWS accounts. Uh, what you want to make sure of is that your AWS accounts don't point to individual people. So the primary email address, that root login address, and the contact information, you want to make sure that's not pointing to a specific person, especially, you know, MFA is great. You should do it on all root logins. But if the MFA is tied to a person's phone, it's tied to that person. So the risk here, obviously, is if that person leaves the company, the root control of the account leaves with them. And it's, it's really hard for us to hand that back over to you unilaterally. That person has to be involved in handing the credentials back. So to avoid that, what you want to do is it's very important to harmonize your AWS account contact information. You want to make sure that the primary email address is a group distribution list that can be subscribed to by everyone who's interested in that AWS account. Um, you also want to make sure, obviously, the contact information points to the company, the phone number points to the company and the MFA device uh, should be a device you can lock in a drawer and not one that walks out of the building with a person. Um, if you haven't yet, check out AWS Organizations. That's our recently launched service that lets you, well, recently, I think it was last year at reInvent. Um, it lets you uh, harmonize your AWS accounts, create child accounts that already have the contact information pre-baked into the account. Another consideration of AWS accounts and account structure is um, kind of an anti-pattern too, is that first, you know, some enterprises try, let's just have one AWS account and we'll put everything in one AWS account. At first that seems logical because you would assume it's easier to govern the security of one AWS account than a lot of AWS accounts. Um, but what happens is when you put a lot of unrelated teams into the same AWS account, it increasingly becomes a very noisy environment to work in. Um, permissioning gets really hard. Cost separation gets hard. There's ambiguous responsibilities boundaries. It's hard to point out who's responsible for what and who's responsible for cleaning up what. Um, and there's a couple of infosec impacts. The first is blast radius. If the admin credentials of this account is compromised, that's exposure to everything. The second infosec impact is in the area of auditing. So suppose this Oracle database highlighted in yellow contains uh, credit card data. So it's in scope for a PCI DSS audit. Now your PCI DSS audit, well, let's show, suppose it turns out clean, they're doing all the right things, they, they can pass the audit, but your auditor still has to go in there and figure out what is the boundaries of the cardholder data environment in this picture. How much of this is involved with handling the cardholder data? It could be a really tough situation to sort that out. So what we recommend to enterprise customers, obviously, is a multi-account strategy. And our enterprise customers at the start of cloud journey, they'll typically ask us, how many AWS accounts should we have? We have a thousand applications. How many accounts is that? And we don't have a strict formula that can tell you how many AWS accounts and VPCs you should create for your whole organization. But I, I think this is a, 
pretty good guidance is think about your AWS accounts as single family homes. And the family that occupies that home is a specific dev team in your organization or a specific capability team within your organization. Um, that's their home in the cloud. Um, you might have some teams that work really closely together, so it's okay to have a few teams in the same AWS account because they are in constant communication with each other. They can quickly rationalize what's going on in that account. Uh, and this approach provides clear and logical security boundaries between all your teams. You can also look at it from the perspective of object-oriented design. In object-oriented programming languages, the concept of an object is that it encapsulates data and functionality and provides an interface to the outside world. So on a grander scale, you can think of all your AWS accounts as individual business capability objects that integrate with each other through various means. They might use REST APIs or they may use uh, AWS service integrations on the platform. And then the cloud security practice is often implemented as an overlay across all those accounts. So a security team would lay in standard security controls and IAM roles into every account so they can continuously audit the entire picture. So next I wanna talk about a couple examples of network design so the first is uh, essentially treating an IP address as a primary means of identity. And this can take a couple of forms. Um, sometimes we see this where a customer is mostly relying on firewall rules and routing to establish trust to get into a service that otherwise has no authentication or authorization built into it. Um, this is okay at a small scale you know, if you have a very specific service with a very specific uh, consumer that's coming from a very specific network address, great. Um, if you have a public endpoint, though, if you're offering a public service to your customers, to your partners, you'll notice as you grow the number of customers or partners, your firewall set grows, you're constantly editing it. Um, at some point, you're going to get a customer or partner that's on AWS and we sometimes, customers will ask us, how do we whitelist all of AWS? How do we whitelist all of EC2? And that's when this sort of situation comes to light. Um, so that would be a public endpoint situation. Over on the right, you see some backend core shared services um, that require a TCP connection to use. And let's say it's on a private, you know, class B network space. So in order to use that shared service, uh, you have to get on the same private network or you have to have a private NAT or a VPN or something. So again, that's something that works at a small scale, but once you, you know, enlarge that to a large enterprise and you got more and more teams trying to get into that service and use it, it can push a lot of complexity into your network design and topology. You have to sort out the logistics of how do you get that many private routes into that service. So for these situations, you know, we often suggest to customers a few things. First of all, implement auth authentication, authorization. Um, trust that first before you, you know, put a lot of weight into routing rules. Um, for a public endpoint, instead of, uh, you know, in the area where you had a public endpoint, what you could do to easily implement authentication, authorization is consider I, I am, uh, I'm sorry, API gateway. 
So API Gateway is a serverless service. It's a combination of load balancer, request router, and it has authentication, authorization methods available to you. You could use IAM, you can use custom authorization with Lambda. Um, we also offer a stack of edge services like uh, CloudFront, Shield is a built-in sort of DDoS mitigation, um, WAF, AWS WAF. So you can stack up a lot of edge services to insulate you from the hostilities of the public internet and still offer a public endpoint uh, without playing that game of you know firewall whack-a-mole. Um, over on the right, back-end shared services, you have other options in AWS besides establishing a direct TCP connection between teams. You can share uh, resources across accounts. So like if you have teams that need to share a data store, you can share an S3 bucket across teams. You can share SQS queues and, and uh, do Oop. microphone. Okay. Uh, you, so you can share resources across the AWS accounts to have a shared communications channel, shared data drop without establishing a direct TCP connection. Uh, next anti-pattern, it's network egress backhauling. Obviously in the financial services space, our customers, uh, their security posture, they have to filter and restrict outbound network traffic. Um, it's very important to have layer seven controls. Um, in a standard AWS setup, if you just spin up a standard AWS account, some EC2 servers, and you have them talking to SQS, they're gonna connect to the SQS public endpoint. That route typically would go through an internet gateway or a NAT. Um, but this sort of setup, there's no layer seven filtering going on. There's nothing to stop those EC2 servers from talking to anything on the internet. So some financial services customers will control it this way. First of all, they'll say, you know, well, since there's no layer seven controls on the IGW or the NAT, let's disable it. We need to filter the traffic. Early in the cloud journey, they might say, well, we've already got layer seven controls on-prem. So we'll backhaul that traffic on-prem, filter it on-prem, send it on its way. And that's fine for the beginning of the cloud journey. Um, that works up to a point. There's obvious uh, trade-offs there. there you know, it adds fragility. If that direct connect goes down, it could have a big impact across the, you know, your whole cloud infrastructure. Um, it forces a hybrid architecture, which is to say it's gonna force every VPC to get on that direct connect. So there's a limit at which this is uh, gonna stop scaling. And so indeed, you know, many of our financial services customers see that as temporary and are moving towards building egress VPCs. So what you see there highlighted in blue is uh, an example of an egress VPC. Usually it takes the form of a pool of EC2 servers running host-based filtering controls. Uh, you have a lot of choices there. We have a lot of partners who specialize in this. We, there's Sophos UTM, there's Trend Micro, Palo Alto. You can even do it with Squid. And we have uh, quick starts on our website that will help you bootstrap that kind of infrastructure with those kinds of controls. Um, and at the end of this presentation in the appendix, I put links to some of those quick starts if you want to look further into this. You, obviously, your other choice for getting out to AWS services is through VPC endpoints. 
And what's nice about like the S3 VPC endpoint is you can control which buckets it's allowed to talk to. So it, it is very specific path to S3 to very specific buckets. Um, and then with this approach, obviously, the direct connect becomes optional. It becomes an as-needed uh, sort of situation. Uh, the next category I want to talk about is how you approach auditing, InfoSec auditing. The first consideration is how your customers audit you, your customers, your partners. Um, it happens still on occasion that when you engage with a new partner, a new customer, that their security team will send a long list of questions to your security team asking about how you've implemented specific controls. Um, obviously, this works up to a point. Uh, if you get a lot of customers, obviously that doesn't scale. You can't have your security team busy all the time filling out questionnaires. Um, so in our industry, We've got you know, third-party standard security assurance frameworks. You know them as the acronyms, of, you know, SOC 1, 1 through 3, there's PCI, there's HIPAA, of course, so on, so on. Uh, with AWS, you know, we have our compliance website where you can see our whole wall of badges and certifications for a lot of uh, internationally recognized, uh, a lot of internationally recognized uh, uh, third-party assurance certifications. The nice thing about these is it's an industry standard way to quickly express your security posture, to quickly express your InfoSec program to other customers. Uh, SOC 2 report can dive into a lot of detail. Uh, SOC 2 type 2, I believe, is the detailed one where customers can see an itemized list of your controls. Um, PCI DSS rock template, that's an interesting document because even if your team is not in scope for PCI or not handling credit card data, nonetheless, what's really great about that document is it's a very prescriptive, it's very explicit. You could practically take that document, give it to an engineering team and say, this is what we need to do for InfoSec controls. Um, and the advantage there is sometimes customers ask us, well, if you look at all the assurance frameworks that are in scope for us, that's thousands of controls. Which of those controls should we be implementing first on AWS out of those thousands? And we, we think of it like this, well, you know, if you look at something like PCI or these other assurance frameworks, there's actually a lot of overlap in what they're asking you to do. I mean, this is just a partial list, but the point is, is what you can do is look at all the frameworks you're in scope for and satisfy the most common requirements first, and then that's gonna make it easier for you to adapt and demonstrate compliance with these other frameworks. So that's how we would suggest prioritizing it. Your security team might also have additional mandates, like obfuscate all host names. Don't hear it often, I think I heard it once. How do we obfuscate all host names in AWS? Um, there might be an activity where you, you probably place more importance on demonstrating industry standard compliance and then address your specific mandates uh, in-house secondly. Here's a more specific example of you know, control mapping between trust services criteria and PCI DSS. Uh, this is just a partial listing of some of the controls that you would have to put in place when you're managing your own servers. Um, on Amazon EC2, we help you with a lot of this stuff. As you know, we have a shared security model. 
on EC2 where AWS is responsible for the security of everything from the hypervisor down to the physical layers. And you're responsible for everything from your guest operating system upwards. But still, if you're in scope for these assurance frameworks, you would have to make sure this is happening from your level up. We would help you with things, obviously, like time clock synchronization. But as far as these other items on the list, you would probably, we can help you in ways such as uh, Amazon Inspector and Amazon's EC2 Systems Manager can help you manage these other aspects from the operating system up. Uh, the next consideration around InfoSec auditing is how you audit yourself. In the financial services space, not unusual to have a technical InfoSec auditing team. Um, sometimes the practices, they will manually go from team to team and do like an interview process and try to gather evidence manually and inspect that evidence. Um, you know, that, that could be a very time-consuming activity, a process that doesn't move that quickly, so your, your internal audits might not be happening that frequently. So we have a lot of customers, especially in financial services, that are trying to move towards continuous automated auditing when they're uh, putting their infrastructure in AWS. We have a lot of partners. There's a lot of a big ecosystem of open source tools out there that will help you do this. It's just a partial listing, but like the first five things listed there are what comes with the platform, CloudWatch logs, Inspector, Macy for S3. Um, we have partners like uh, Cloud Conformity, Evident IO, Dome 9, and uh, then there's open source tools like Cloud Custodian by Capital One, CFN NAG by Stelligent, and pretty soon John is going to describe how they leverage uh, CFN NAG. But all of these controls, most of them focus on auditing configurations of the AWS platform itself. So, you know, the more you use native services, the more you can leverage these tools to help you do continuous and quick auditing of your entire infrastructure. But let's suppose you take the opposite approach. Let's suppose, and this is kind of extreme, but let's suppose you decide, no, we're, we're just going to go pure EC2, pure infrastructure as a service, no native services. There's a couple of InfoSec impacts of that path. First of all, it's, uh, you know, if you run just a pure server farm, you run it across a lot of teams, obviously you're gonna have a lot of teams running different applications at different patch levels. It's gonna be uh, rather hard to do a consistent audit across the entire infrastructure, to push out a patch across the entire infrastructure with assurance that you're not gonna break anything. So there's gonna be some methodology sprawl. And also, you're not taking full advantage of the platform. It's kind of like, again, it's kind of like strapping a horse to an automobile. So, you know, consider that the native services of AWS gives you, first of all, more consistency of implementation across many teams. And so you can apply some of those tools I listed a couple slides back to audit this kind of infrastructure at a large scale. Um, and, and this is how our, you know, startups, the fintech disruptor startups, this is what they do to get it done quickly, as how they innovate quickly, is they go right after our native services. They go after the serverless high-level services because that reduces their operational burden, helps them innovate quickly. It also, it pushes a lot of that responsibility boundary from InfoSec responsibility towards AWS. 
And then you can refer to our compliance reports and our attestations. Those are available on the AWS Artifact website. If you want like a detailed SOC report, for example, you can download it from Artifact. And I also mentioned our compliance website. So you can push a lot of that uh, security responsibility boundary more towards AWS and demonstrate compliance even faster. Here's a specific example of auditing a native service, how easy it could be. Um, this is a, just a small bit of uh, Python code I put together that quickly checks all the RDS database instances in an AWS account in all regions to see if the database storage is encrypted, yes or no. It's real simple. And it doesn't matter if that database is MySQL or Postgres or Oracle. Uh, to the AWS control plane, the storage is either encrypted or it's not. So this kind of code, you can put in a Lambda function. You can schedule it with CloudWatch events to run every hour. You can have a metric alarm in CloudWatch. And that's the only code you need to write. You can customize it to your liking. If you don't want to write any code, you could leverage uh, AWS config rule called RDS storage encrypted, which basically does the same thing. But that's an example of when you use the native platform, you have all these options for consistently auditing a very diverse, large fleet of infrastructure. Here's another example. This is how a technical InfoSec auditor might consider the security posture of an S3 bucket. So in this example, that blue EMR cluster there is analyzing a large data set from S3. Um, it's a sensitive data set, contains sensitive information, so there's a lot of preventative controls that have been layered on to make sure that that data set stays secure. So in the bucket policy, you know, you can say that this bucket is only accessible from that VPC or that VPC endpoint only accessible from the IAM role of that EMR cluster or the EC2 nodes in that EMR cluster. And that's essentially like having dynamic credentials so you're not handling static credentials. Um, you know, make sure encryption at rest and encryption in flight is enforced in the bucket policy. And then there's a couple options you can add to the bucket to protect you from deletes like uh, MFA delete, which means requiring an extra level of authentication to do a delete. Uh, you can have versioning, which kind of does backups, different versions. So you can even, you know, protect the data from logical issues where you might have deleted or inadvertently modified the data. And the S3 endpoint policy, as I mentioned before, you can lock that down, the specific S3 buckets. Uh, as far as detective controls, config rules will tell you if you've got a bucket that's public uh, writable, public readable. And here's a growing trend with Lambda. We're seeing more and more uh, reactive security controls being implemented with Lambda. And the pattern is essentially you use CloudWatch events to monitor a configuration change, like an S3 bucket policy change. And then you put that through a Lambda function. Lambda function will decide whether to accept or reject or revert that policy change. So that's a growing trend. And uh, again, in the appendix of this presentation, I put a link to our security blog that dives into that reactive control right there for S3 policy remediation. So how would your InfoSec team, your auditors, even know how to look for all these things? How would they even know all this? 
Well, this year we launched our auditor's learning path uh, on our public website. So that has a lot of materials. It's got links to some really great past reInvent presentations uh, from customers that are doing continuous auditing and they are PCI compliant, so it describes how they do it at a large scale. Um, also lead-ins to some of our training programs like Tech Essentials. And uh, last example of an anti-pattern before I turn it over to John. And there's really only one pattern to talk about here, and that's kind of the traditional over-the-wall software delivery method. And this is sort of the, the situation where you're in a functional organization where development, QA, and ops, and all those activities are kept in separate teams. Um, and software is handed off, or changes are handed off from team to team. And this can lead to infrequent rollouts of patches, infrequent rollouts of uh, you know, new features. You can think of it this way. You know, there's uh, a functional organization where a change starts with architecture, goes through development, over to QA, over to operations, et cetera. And finally, a delivery team puts it out on production. A um, lot of planning, a lot of overhead working this way, so things tend to move you know, at that sort of pace. So as customers adopt AWS, uh, of course they're moving from this model to more of the DevOps operating model. So bringing those activities together into a single small interdisciplinary team that uh, basically that team is responsible for all matters of a particular system, so the entire life cycle of the system, rather than having a pool of, of people who perform vertical activities for the entire enterprise. Now you have an interdisciplinary team that owns the system. So how can a small team take on all that responsibility? Well, they apply a lot of automation for every aspect of the software and system delivery life cycle. Uh, so in the operations side, you know, basically that same team that wrote the code in a true operating DevOps operating model, the people who wrote the code, the builders are also responsible for the live quality of production. And so sometimes we're asked, well, in working in that mode, does that mean that developers carry pagers and they get paged at 3 a.m.? And yeah, in a true DevOps operating model, yes, the builders are a point of escalation. And often that leads to uh, fanatical devotion to testing. So they will, if they get paged at 3 a.m., they will probably end up writing a test to make sure that never happens again. Um, this, is act this is actually how Amazon works internally. This is how we build stuff. This is our process. Um, that pyramid there is called the pyramid of testing or the testing pyramid from Mike Cohn's book, Succeeding with Agile. So, to go, you know, when you're working in this mode where developers and builders are responsible for quality and they start putting proactive quality checks into their code, the next logical place to go with that is to put proactive security checks into the code as well. So to get from DevOps to DevSecOps, basically you're just augmenting that pyramid of testing. Of course, you have to have manual code reviews that's required by you know, those security frameworks, most of them require that the person who, you know, wrote the change and the person who approves the change has to be two different people. 
Um, so code reviews are a must, uh, proactive security tests. And of course, every change has to be auditable, so this sort of pipeline would constantly be turning out you know, auditable uh, artifacts such as change deployment logs. So to look at that from a tooling perspective, here is uh, an example of a deployment pipeline on AWS. So many ways to do deployment pipelines in AWS. You have a lot of options. Um, this particular example employs a lot of our serverless options, so you can build an entire deployment pipeline without managing any servers of your own uh, by leveraging our code services. The only services in this are EC2, which is the actual infrastructure that's being stood up. But you can see that the labels in red call out where that sort of proactive security posture is taking place. So during the code building process, there's static analysis happening. During the uh, staging process, security tests, vulnerability tests, penetration tests can be run against the staging environment. And of course, there's that manual change review process. Somebody has to review the actual change and leave an audit trail. And then when code finally gets to production, there's all those tools I talked about earlier that are continuously monitoring the entire environment. So here's an example of kind of bringing it all together. Two teams working in parallel in separate AWS accounts. One team is responsible for building, let's say, a base image, the base AMI that other teams are expected to use. And then along the bottom, you see another team consuming that AMI and incorporating it into their build process. So what happens here is these two teams, they run in parallel to each other. They don't block each other. Um, and so the top team, you know, they've got their own DevSecOps-style pipeline building that AMI. The lower team, essentially, when their pipeline, every time they push out changes, they are grabbing the latest AMI that's available from the other team and incorporating it into their tests. So if their AMI proves to be incompatible with their code base, it'll break in the testing environment rather than the production. And this gives you kind of just continuous and routine rehydration happening with every kind of code change. So right now I want to turn over to John Balch from Fidelity Investments, and he's going to talk about how they approach DevSecOps. Thanks, Kurt. My name is Jonathan Balch. I work on the platform engineering team in the personal investing arm of Fidelity Investments. What I want to talk to you today is about how software development has changed with our journey to AWS. Kurt brought up some great points of common pitfalls around delivering software. So I'll describe how Fidelity is actively trying to avoid these. We have many initiatives utilizing AWS, but to highlight a few, through our web application replatform, we're shooting to create elastic applications that can grow and shrink to demand. We see this every day during market open and close, but that type of auto-scaling just isn't realistic in our internal data centers. Secondly, we've got a big focus on our big data analytics. The goal is to reduce the maintenance costs of running a 24 by 7 Hadoop cluster yet enable teams to harness the compute power that meets their needs with the up-to-date software they want. Now, when we talk about security at Fidelity, it normally falls into three main categories. Prevention, 
detection, and remediation. With prevention, how do we catch vulnerabilities and assess risk prior to ever deploying an application? In detection, how do we monitor our applications and infrastructure for dangerous exposures? And through remediation, once an issue is detected, what do we do about it? In isolation, utilizing or relying on only one of these categories can provide you with only so much protection. Or even worse, if all your security checks are manual, it's going to be tough to convince any outside third party that you're actually secure. So let's take a look at an example of a CI-CD pipeline used at Fidelity. As we morph from teams owning just their application code to including their infrastructure, we didn't want to break the model that we had established for so many years. Local development of the application and infrastructure, committing to a central repository, building and testing the application end-to-end, pushing these built artifacts to be reused across environments, and lastly, releasing new features that provide additional value to our customers. So the question you may ask is where does security come into play here? We've always performed static code analysis and penetration testing on our applications, but traditionally there was a disconnect between where we deployed and how that infrastructure was set up. As we matured in our DevSecOps practices, what we had to answer is how you incorporate security when teams start to define their own infrastructure as code. What was critical to our success was automation. Since teams were empowered to control more of their end-to-end -end application, we didn't want to have to make the choice between agility and security. Now going back to prevention, detection, and remediation, here's what it looks like for our infrastructure at AWS. When teams are developing software, we recommend that they run security checks as soon as possible to create a quick feedback loop. Promoting a production candidate through all these layers, only to realize at the end that you're actually insecure, really reduces development agility. Teams can choose when they integrate preventative security into their development cycle, but when they're promoting to higher environments, we enforce these security checks. We don't want to take the chance that we release insecure code or infrastructure that could impact our customers. But prevention can only go so far, and you should never consider these controls to be sufficient by themselves. Here's an example of where a rogue IAM role has been created. As you all know, IAM is tremendously powerful, and so at Fidelity, we don't allow development teams to freely administer their AWS accounts. So when a role is created that is too permissive, we want to make sure to lock it down. Today, we do this by ensuring that the appropriate IAM policies created by our central security teams are attached to every role managed by the application. Continuously throughout the day, we have different types of detective controls monitoring all our AWS accounts, and their sole job is to alert on anything out of the ordinary. To create a decoupled architecture, we've separated these detective controls from the actions we take on offenders. Customized to the actions we want to take on the various rogue resources, detective controls can invoke automatic remediation lambda functions that fix any issues that have been identified. 
With this example, and the RDS and S3 security controls that Kurt highlighted, you can start to get an idea of how you can, how, of how you can deliver security through code rather than documentation. To talk more specifically, I want to highlight one of the many tools we use to automate our security enforcement at AWS. CFN NAG is a linting tool for CloudFormation templates that's open source, extremely extensible, and provides a wealth of default security rules to be run. Initially, we started off by implementing just the base set of rules for CFN NAG, but we soon found out that a lot of fidelity-specific policies were stuck in documentation jail and actually weren't being enforced. To liberate these, we looked at adding a rule and many rules to CFN NAG. After reviewing what it takes to write a rule, we found out it was surprisingly easy. And so what happens when security rules are easy to write? You create a lot of them. Our central security team, working with application teams, codified these rules governing our AWS ecosystem. That development collaboration ensured teams received fast feedback when developing their own secure applications. Now going back to the rogue IAM role example, we wanted to establish a virtual fence was placed around each IAM role that guarded against misuse. So to create this, it became a CFN NAG role. Every application role needed what we called a whitelist attached to it. To enforce this, we execute CFN NAG on all our CloudFormation templates prior to deployment. When run, you'll see that CFN NAG actually catches this role not containing the necessary IAM whitelist and fails, preventing a risky role from ever being deployed into the account. Now, touching back on what Kurt said about automating your audits, we then have a record of this occurring, and every time our CloudFormation templates have actually passed, to establish a paper trail that someone didn't have to record manually. To summarize some of the big learnings we've had, avoid the wall and drive controls through practical use cases. You don't want to create an entire set of security controls only to realize at the end that application teams can't create solutions to meet those requirements. Secondly, DevSecOps not only increases your agility, but your security as well. When you automate your security, you know exactly what's happening when and how it occurs. The same can't be said about manual checks. And lastly, once you've codified your security, application teams will be empowered to control more of their end-to-end -end process and as a result, develop better software. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, so I think it was back in April when I visited John at his office and uh, he was showing me something they were putting out in production and he mentioned that they ran into an IEM role that was caught in their deployment checks and I was like, how'd you do that? And he talked through what he just talked to you about. I was like, that, that's great. That's exactly, that's exactly the kind of practice that you know, helps you have a proactive security posture. So I thought it was just excellent. Um, so to wrap it up, um, you know, we talked about a lot of things, what some of the takeaways to think about. Um, those third-party security assurance frameworks that you're mostly in scope for, 
there's a couple advantages there. It's not just that they're standard and they're well understood throughout the industry. It gives you a shorthand way to describe your InfoSec program. But also they can be very prescriptive, like PCI DSS. Even if you're not handling cardholder data, you can take a look at that and get some idea of what those other frameworks are going to ask you to do. Um, on EWS platform, when you leverage our native services, it gives you the advantage of pushing more of the InfoSec burden towards Amazon. It also gives you the advantage of it gives you more consistency across your infrastructure, more auditability with a standard set of tools. And there's a growing ecosystem of tools that address doing that sort of auditing at a large scale. And lastly, DevSecOps is kind of the emerging pattern where it's essentially it's DevOps with proactive security checks in every deployment. Uh, and that's something you, know, you want to encourage your development teams to start to think in that direction. That's it. Um, please remember to submit your surveys, your evaluations for all these sessions. You see at reInvent, it really helps us uh, tune the uh, content and everything you see towards uh, what you're interested in. So uh, with that, I think we've got time for Q&A.